Hello, and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast by movie nerds for movie nerds, where we attempt to uh, elevate some of the movies that may need a little more love in the world. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, your host, and uh, we have a treat for you today. This is going to be our first dramatic podcast. Last time we delved into Top Secret, one of my all-time favorite comedies, and this time we're going to be mixing it up a little bit. And uh, we'll be talking about a very, very controversial slash misunderstood slash uh, very complex drama from 2004 called The Village. And to help me on this journey, I'm going to bring along my friends here. Let's see. Our guest today, he is a uh, writer, a producer. What else are you? A jackass? General malcontent? Um, yeah. I think smart that's Alec. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My friend, this is uh, Brian Scully. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you, Mario. This is uh, this is going to be an interesting one because The Village has been a movie I've loved since I saw it in theaters when it was first released, and I have been fighting opinion about it ever <laughs> since. Oh yeah, yeah. Trust me, this is this is one. There's going to be a lot of listenership for this one because there's almost no one who's seen The Village and doesn't have a very strong opinion of it one way or another. Yeah, it's it's. Um, there are certain movies that are just born to be divisive, and and I'm not an M Night Shyamalan movie will be divisive regardless in one way or another. But, but this one was where it really started creating like chasms of division. Because uh, after this, he did Lady in the Water. And God knows that that is a very, very bad movie and badly regarded movie. Uh, <laughs> this was sort of like, for some people, the bridge to him doing that. And also they were sort of riding a wave. I'm just jumping right in. Yeah, They were ahead. riding a wave of... Uh, believing that he, they, they believed he was a one trick pony because the sixth sense happened to have a twist. Mm -hmm. And so they inserted that filter over everything he did since. Um, And so unbreakable, they saw it through the filter of the sixth sense signs. They saw through the filter of the sixth sense and the village is where it really hurt the most because this is, I mean, we'll get, so I'll let you start with the topic, but oh my God, there's just so much I want to say about what I truly believe and will go to bat for as one of the best movies last decade, unquestionably. Excellent. Okay, let's give people a little backstory in case they're not familiar, because I was, I'd mentioned we were talking about this movie, and I had a lot of people saying, oh, I've never heard of that. What is that? So let's give a little backstory. I will leave it to you. You seem to be the uh, Shyamalan expert. And that, am I pronouncing his name correctly? Is that Shyamalan? Uh, uh, Shyamalan. 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 Okay. So why don't you give us a little history on how M. Night Shyamalan became famous and how we arrived here at the village? So M. Night Shyamalan started his career um, uh, with very, very, a couple of very small movies. Um, Praying with Anger uh, was a very autobiographical movie about uh, you know, growing up uh, as, as an as Indian-American. Um, Wide Awake is a movie with Rosie O'Donnell, and it's very kind of sixth sensey in some respects, where it deals with death and uh, the church and, and just sort of what comes after and how do you grapple with that. Um, and it was with The Sixth Sense, which was a spec that he sold to Disney, uh, that, that it really all exploded for him. And, uh, I mean, it's because the script is, is, is absolutely amazing. Um, and, and that's why he got such a huge fee for it. I think it was like 2 million, 2.5 million. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and it's, it's because of that, that obviously he, he's now on the genre train that he is. Um, but, uh, he started off with, uh, just very small, personal, quiet character drama slash comedy pieces. Like they're, they're not 
supernatural. They're not fantastical by any by any stretch of the imagination. And so The Sixth Sense was his first time doing genre. And of course, that's what became his bread and butter. And as a result, Unbreakable had a fantastical element. It's his, uh, it's his um, origin story uh, for a comic book hero in, in so many ways. And after that, you have Signs, where it's alien. It's about faith, and it's about you know family loss and grief, but it's also about aliens. Mm-hmm. And then we get to The Village, and The Village, out of his like popular fare, um, is the only movie he, has, he, he ever did uh, before he got to The Visit, um, where... There are no monsters. There is nothing supernatural. There is nothing that is fantastical or otherworldly about this movie. It is only about people and how people are, in fact, the monsters. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of his reputation, The Village obviously was sold as a horror movie very much in the same vein of Sixth Sense and Unbreakable in Science, which it's not. Mm-hmm. I will I will stand by that the village is not a horror movie. It is if it is very much a melancholy, gothicish, uh, in certain ways romance with thriller elements at mm-hmm. times. Um, and people didn't know what the hell to make of that mm-hmm. because yeah. that's not who M Night Shyamalan is. And so uh, Disney didn't know how to sell it to an audience. The audiences didn't know what they were getting. They walked into the movie thinking that it was going to be one thing. It was something completely different. To this day, I will say that that is why the opinions of this movie are as strongly uh, divisive as they are. Because yeah. people went into it wanting something that it wasn't going to give them. And mm-hmm. they, they are just not happy with that. They wanted what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You said you would argue strongly that it's not a horror movie. I don't think it's even close to a horror movie. I mean, I, I understand why it was marketed that way at the time, but it's like, it really does, it's an injustice to even hint that this is a horror movie. Yeah, there's there are there are two moments total where anything even vaguely horrific, it, you, I, I, would, I wouldn't even go that far to use that word, but if you really want to stretch it, vaguely horrific. And that's when Ivy is in the woods uh, and when um, those who don't speak of are in the village and Ivy is waiting for Lucius to see if he'll come back. That's mm-hmm. it. Okay. Otherwise, this movie isn't, it, it doesn't come close to it. And so, dear God, people just did not know what they were getting. <laughs> it's more sad than anything. And again, I've watched it a lot over the last couple months. And it mm-hmm. just strikes me what a sad movie it is. Yeah. It, it's, it is, when I say melancholy, I really mean it. It is, mm-hmm. it is a study. In grief and in fear, and mm-hmm. it embraces those two things like a like a very large warm blanket, and it it, it just explores that nonstop. Uh, it, it does not explore shocking you or <laughs> it has no interest in that. Okay, so I'm just going to give people the, the, the M. Night Shyamalan for Dummies here, the short version, just in case they didn't understand what you were talking about in some of those things. Yeah, so Sixth Sense, massive hit, huge hit. He's well known for it. I don't think we'd ever talk about it on the show because it's like universally beloved movie. And then, yeah, yeah, Unbreakable, which I'm not the biggest fan of, but I don't dislike it. I know a lot of people love that movie. That would be a fun one to talk about maybe one day. Also a fairly big hit. Signs. Mm-hmm. Fairly divisive, but still a big hit. And then The yeah. Village, which absolutely turned some people off to the point that that uh, I was just reading Roger Ebert's review of it this morning. And yeah. he was like he was like offended that this movie was made. He was so pissed. Like he was just visibly angry about that, at this movie. It, he, I think he called it a colossal misfire. And <laughs> uh, and I think that his 
interpretation can be described just as such. Um, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I think he's another example of it. Just it didn't occur to him that he went into it with an expectation that was not ever going to be met, and he didn't mm-hmm. know what to do with that. Um, yeah, it's, okay. it, it's 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 almost like it angers me to read some of those <laughs> reviews like that. Yeah. And this is something, a theme you're going to run into that I know a lot of people, Brian's one, obviously I have another friend, Justin, that they liked the not the village, maybe the first time they saw it. And then the second time you saw it, you really liked it. And the third time you really like it, you just absolutely love it the more and more you watch it. Do you find that true in your case as well? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I the village is a movie that I have rewatched very constantly mm-hmm. um, ever since I got the DVD uh, the internet came out and I had been rewatching it for like five or six times in the past couple of days just to get ready for this. I think I tweeted this. It is still just as sublime to me as it was 14 years ago. And I'm still finding little details, little nuances and, and choices that are made. The world building is just so perfect. The, <laughs> uh, the character work and the choices that are made are so pitch perfect. I, it's, it, it is, I, Unbreakable is my favorite Shyamalan movie, and The Sixth mm-hmm. Sense is genius, but in a way that I respect it more than I love it, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. But to me, The Village is the one that I connect to the most. And I, I, I absolutely fall more in love with it as time goes on. Now, did you fall in love with it the first time? Again, because I'm just reminding people, Brian is a screenwriter. He does this for a living. So he may look at a script, a story a little differently than maybe the average layman were, would like, did you, did this movie call to you the first time you saw it? It, it didn't, it hasn't, it's aged. It, it called to me. Yes, but it's definitely aged very well for me. Um, as, as a younger person having, I think I was, uh, like 21 when it came out and I, uh, I didn't, I connected with it in, in very specific ways. And as life went on and as, the tragedies of life happen mm-hmm. as they do. The movie takes a much stronger significance and, mm-hmm. and the way it plays those themes and the way it, um, uh, the way it, it lets the heart of uh, a character explore this kind of, uh, this kind of idea of isolationism to run from your fear, to run from your tragedy. But as August Nicholson says, you may run from sorrow as we have sorrow will find you. It can smell you like that is something that you feel so much more profoundly as you get older, just because you lose more, you see people lose more. Um, the world hurts more and, uh, it, 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 how it goes through its journey in the movie connects so much more strongly as a result. So, so yeah, I would say that, as a younger person, loved it for what it was in, in many ways, but it's something you just don't really appreciate until you've faced mm-hmm. a little bit of what this movie faces. At least that's what I would argue. Yeah. And I would say, see, my history with this movie is, you know, I'd seen all his movies and I love The Sixth Sense. Unbreakable. I liked it more now. I didn't maybe at the time. Signs mm-hmm. I thought was cool. And I remember seeing The Village. And again, the uh, the pushback against it, the fallout was just immediate. Like, people just loved it or hated it. So polarized right off the bat. And my wife and I saw it on DVD right after it came out. And, there, you know, there's a big elephant in the room here that we haven't mentioned the fact that there's a huge twist in this movie. But I will say we watched it for the first time. I thought, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm sorry, it's not a, I, I would argue it's not a twist at all. It's, it's, it's the first movie he does where there's absolutely no twist whatsoever. That, I Excellent. Would, I will get to that later, though. Please continue. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. 
because I was going to say make that exact same argument. That is not really a twist. Okay. So anyway, yeah. So we get to this big twist that everyone's talking about, and I'm like, oh, that was kind of cool. And I didn't really think it was great. I didn't think it was bad. It was just kind of neat. Okay, it was a neat way of reevaluating the movie when you get to the end. And I just kind of filed this movie away. I'm like, okay, that was that was pretty good. Like, I don't understand why people were so visibly angry at this movie. Like, it really it doesn't it doesn't I don't it doesn't really take shortcuts. It's it's it was weird the hatred for it. And so I'm sure we'll yeah. get into what the hate was really at. But anyway, mm-hmm. so anyway, it came back. I, I started doing a website about 10 years later called movies that deserve more love. And I rented the village thinking, Oh, I would like to, I would like to build this one up a little bit. I'm thinking it wasn't horrible. That's going to be my argument. It's not, bad. <laughs> it's not horrible. And I watched it and I was just blown away with how good it is when you know the story and then watch it a second time. Yeah. And I was like, this is a freaking masterpiece. And so I watched it again and again. And I'm like, every time I watch it, it's better. And I'm like, this is a movie. There is no better candidate for this podcast than The Village that really, <laughs> really, really needs kind of real evaluation out there. Uh, 100% agree. And that's why I'm glad to be here to help you with that, because uh, I'm tired of fighting this battle by myself. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when I when I announce what kind of movies I'm doing for this podcast, people are always saying, oh, I'd like to do that. And, oh, I'd like to be the co-host. The Village, I had a line of like 12 people. Like it's people are lining really? up to do this. <laughs> wow. It's funny. Yeah, it's like I don't think there are that many people that hate it th- anymore. It's one of those things I think maybe people have started to come around on it. I don't know, but it's just it just is my sense that I don't really know is it's hated as much as it once was. The the criticism that I tend to hear nowadays is, oh, I guessed the ending, as if that kind of cancels out the whole movie. Well, it's like, <laughs> you know, I could guess the, the ending of a Rocky movie and it's still a good movie. I mean, <laughs> Amazingly so enough, the Titanic sinking does not preclude you from being swept up in the previous three and a half hours of the story. Yeah. So I mean, sometimes, yes, you you get where it's going, and and that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it isn't to blindside you with a left turn uh, five minutes before you walk out the door. Sometimes the purpose of that story is to take you on a specific journey, which is the point of the village. It's yeah, all absolutely. about the journey of these characters, the way that they have run their journey is to retreat and mm-hmm. how that retreat has damaged them. All right. I'm, I'm just there. Again, there's a huge elephant in the room in that everyone, the only thing people want to talk about with the village is this AKA quote unquote twist, which we're both going to argue isn't even a twist at all. Cause it's hinted at well into the movie. And it's really, it's just a certain way of looking at the storyline. Really? It's, that's, that's the, but anyway, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to do the best I can to describe this plot to people who've never seen the movie before without giving away any specific spoiler details. You think we can, it's possible to do that? I mean, I don't, yeah, it's possible, <laughs> but are we really going to try to dodge no. discussing the end? Of course not. No, of then, course why not. Are, then why admit this? Just give, give it all. <laughs> give it all. All right. <clears throat> okay. We will, if you are concerned about spoilers, I will give you a little quick summary, just a recap. We'll do that. A little recap of what the story is and what the controversy is. And then I will specifically say in the podcast, spoilers from here on out, and then we get to the good stuff. You think that's fair? I think that's fair. And I also would suggest that people should watch this movie as soon as freaking possible so they can truly appreciate what we're even talking about. Because yeah. this is a movie that needs to be experienced to even make any sense of the next 45 plus minutes. Okay, so herein is the storyline of the village, as near as I can remember it. I'm, I'm sometimes bad with name, going over the entire plot. But mm-hmm. there's this little, it's almost like an Amish village, you would say. It's like a little collection mm-hmm. of people that kind of live under a certain code. It's kind of old-timey. They kind of have the, you know, the old-timey language and customs and stuff. They're all farmers. 
And what's the name of it again? Covington Woods? It's like this whole uh, community? Covington, yeah, they call it Covington. Okay, yeah, it's Covington. And it's really in this little meadow, and they formed a little township. And it really, it's almost like an old-timey Amish village. And uh, there is a cluster of woods around them. And basically, this is their life. They live there, they farm, they you know, go to church. It's just very simple, pious life with the one asterisk being there's woods around us and there's monsters in it. Don't go in there. And this is beaten into the kids' heads over and over from the day they are born. Do not cross those woods. Do not leave these woods. There's monsters there. They will eat you. It's only safe in here. We're good so far? Yeah, we're, we're right on point. And that there is a truce. The elders tell the children that there is a truce between these creatures, uh, what they tell the children are called those we don't speak of, which mm-hmm. grammatically infuriates me, but I go with it. Uh, and between them and the villagers. And so as long as they do not cross the border into the woods, the creatures will not cross the border into the village. And that mm-hmm. is the peace that has been maintained throughout its whole existence. And so the children simply know this is life. Okay, good. So this is the story of who is, let's see, the village elder played by William Hurt. His name is Mr. Walker. Do we know his first name or is he just Mr. Walker? Oh, Lord. Um, the word Albert is what comes to mind, but I, I'm, I'm very possibly wrong. And okay. I'm too lazy to Google it right now. <laughs> okay. So Mr. Walker, and he has, uh, what, two daughters? He's yes. got uh, Kitty, the eldest daughter, played by Judy Greer, which is hilarious if you know Arrested Development, and she also <laughs> plays a kitty name on, on that show. So anyway, she, it's, it's a the strange. last time you'll be seeing these. <laughs> yes. I'm going to use that as the stinger at the end of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kitty is his eldest daughter, and then Ivy is his youngest daughter, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who is a uh, daughter in real life of Ron Howard. So yeah, so he has the two daughters, and it's basically the story of his youngest daughter, Ivy. That She's blind. Again, she's played by Bryce Dallas Howard, and she really does a fantastic job in this movie. It's one of these yes. things that even people that hate this movie will admit, well, she was pretty good in it. Yes, yes, yes. She is, she is uh, easily the standout of a standout cast. Okay, so basically the short version of the story is Ivy's going to fall in love with this uh, young handyman named Lucius, who's played by River Fe- or Joaquin Phoenix, and it's really going to be the story of their love and how it sets into motion a lot of things, and uh, both good and some very bad, and then a decision that must be made at the end of the movie, which will unravel the entire point of this village being here. It's it's very complex. I'm trying not to give away any specific details. Brian, please jump in. Is there something you think that the novice should know before they watch this movie? Uh, no, I think that's... I, I, I think if you're trying to avoid telegraphing anything outright, that's as succinct as you can make it um other than to say that the village is born out of grief um it's something that the elders have not been shy to tell uh the next generation that they're raising their own children that they are there to remove themselves from the towns and the outside world because that is where the violence happens that is where death and misery and crime immorality have always taken place mm-hmm. and they refuse to let their children be victim to it as well. Yeah. And, and that, and that's just born into them that outside of those woods into those towns beyond those borders is where hell is. Mm-hmm. And we refuse to let this become hell. Yeah. And I, and I, the one thing I can add here is that how the story is kind of driven here, like these people have been living here for, they never say in the movie, I'm assuming it's about 20 years because that's how young some of these kids are, how old some yeah. of these kids are. Yeah, roughly so 20, assuming, 25-ish Yeah, years, 20, yeah. 25 years. And the problem that's facing the village is that 
children are dying. They're getting infections. They're dying of simple diseases that could be cured. And it's becoming an issue with some of the other people like, well, why don't we just go into the towns and we can get the medicines and the medicines would maybe cure us and because we, we don't have those here. And so this is becoming the moral dilemma. Should there be someone to go out and venture and get some of the medicines and come back and help the village or should they just stay out of this hellish existence on the other side of the woods? So this is this is what's going to drive the entire story here. Absolutely. And uh, I feel like if we said anything more, we would have to hit the spoiler alert. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> this is where we officially hit the spoiler alert. So if you've never seen The Village, turn this off right now. All six or seven of my listeners, just turn this off and go watch The Village, rent it, whatever. Make up your mind what you think of it. Then come back, and now we're going to get to the good stuff, as uh, Michael Bolton say, and now back to the good part. Mm-hmm. So now that we have alerted our our nice and diverse and large listening base, <laughs> feel free, Mr. Lanza, to get into the good stuff. Okay, what what would be the ideal way to do this? Should we just summarize why this village was created, or should we walk through the story beat by beat and explain how it's crafted? What do you think would be a more rich uh, viewing experience for people? Uh, I feel like we don't need to walk into walk through beat by beat. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like if because uh, I mean, we're going to get into all those beats, I think pretty organically, mm-hmm. just to go right for the gut. Um, what ultimately happens is that through personal not I, not conflicts, but jealousies and very just very human things that happen between people when they don't get what they want. Mm-hmm. Lucius is critically injured, mm-hmm. and Ivy demands that she be allowed to go into the towns mm-hmm. and cross through the woods to get the medicine that he needs because, as she says, if he dies, all that is left of me will die with him. Mm-hmm. And her father knows that, sh- that he cannot stop her because Ivy is extremely strong. She is fiercely independent and mm-hmm. she believes in, in, in the conquering of good and she believes in hope, which is something that though the elders have discussed, that they're there for hope to mm-hmm. flourish, they repress it <laughs> yes. with fear. And so he knows he can't do that with Ivy. And so he confesses uh, to Ivy that the creatures do not exist mm-hmm. and that those we don't speak of are the elders. Yes. They have made suits. They take turns in the village on occasion by penetrating the borders and, and scaring uh, the population so that they remain in fear of what's outside. Thus, they want to stay inside. And once he tells that to Ivy, Ivy knows, so going to town is really just a simple matter of walking there. Great. Uh, I'm skipping several beats uh, with a couple of guides that go with her and certain other things that happen. Um, But when she does get outside the border of the woods, we see that a park ranger in a jeep uh, is nearby, sees her hopping over a fence, and asks her, you are not allowed in there, what are you doing? And we see that it is not the late 19th century, as we were led to believe, that, <laughs> quote, <laughs> as we were led to believe, but modern day, present day, and the medicines that they need are the syringes and the penicillin, and, uh, other um, drugs to calm down Lucius' fever and, and, and stop the infection from spreading, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as we... As, as Ivy returns uh, and the villagers have to make a choice, do we continue to maintain our facade or mm-hmm. do we do we hope that we can survive past this? And, and should we confess 
to those uh, to those others around us, and they vote to keep the facade. They vote yeah. to keep the secret, even though Ivy, the strongest person in this village of its new generation, knows everything. You know, it, it, it has a both happy, satisfying ending that the people who are supposed to survive are going to survive, but it's still very melancholy and it's still very disquieting uh, how, in in so many ways, the people who have known the best continue to do the worst and double down on their choice. I want to give people kind of a big picture overview here because I, I don't want to lose people because I know exactly we're both going to be saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. But what I want to do is I think it would be more helpful to let's talk about what happened to the townspeople before they created the village, why they created the village. I think this sure. is really, really uh, important to under, kind of understand the resonance of this movie and why sad, how sad this movie is. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the uh, all of these elders met at a crisis counseling center. Yes. Because they are all the they are all people whose families were murdered and mm-hmm. violated, um, uh, robbed, and their bodies left in dumpsters for uh, for dead. Yeah. Um, and and the, and the thing is that these stories are stories the elders tell the children very openly. They mm-hmm. just happen to change a couple of specific nouns, such as. When uh, Sigourney Weaver, Lucius's mother, um, talks about how Lucius's father left to go to the market, mm-hmm. not the supermarket, but just the market mm-hmm. at a specific time of day. And he was left in an alley naked and, and robbed and murdered uh, instead of the uh, dumpster that he was mm-hmm. actually found in. So, mm-hmm. so uh, all of these people came together because the world broke them, the world mm-hmm. of crime, the world of human indecency, and just how human beings are the monsters against themselves. And so uh, William Hurt's character, Mr. Walker, happened to be uh, a man of wealthy means as Mm -hmm. someone who has inherited a family fortune and was also a history professor at the University of Pennsylvania and proposes using that money, that family fortune, to run away from the world. All of these people do escape what the world is. Yeah, Even and that's, though, again, as August Nicholson says, you may run from sorrow as we have, sorrow will find you. I love that line. That's a great line. There's so many good quotes here. Yeah. Again, that's the part that I think people don't remember. They'll guess the twist. Oh, this movie's set in modern times. That's the twist. Ha ha, I outsmarted the movie. But like, it's much deeper than that. And that's the thing that I think people don't remember unless they've seen this movie, that... That's this is the this is the response to pain. Every single one of these people has had someone in their life murdered, taken away from them, raped, killed. Just they've all suffered horrible tragedies, and they met in a in a yeah crisis counseling group. And then this one rich guy, Mister Walker, said basically, I mean, it's not unlike we went and formed a cult. Let's go out and live in a like Charles Manson. Go live in the caves, and this will be our mm-hmm. world, and no one can intrude on us. So it was a very unhealthy way to approach grief, but at the same time, a very normal way. This is what people tend to do when they have massive grief in their life. You lose a child, you lose a parent, a spouse. You basically, you don't want to feel grief again. You want to protect yourself. You want to insulate, and it's a psychological thing. And so that's the thing. They basically arrested development. Like, I hate to make another kitty joke, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, they they are not going to experience grief again, and they've run away from the world. They've gone out here into this park reserve, which Mr. Walker is revealed later, comes from a very rich family. And we are going to set up a commune. We're living in a little commune. We're going to have kids and it's going to be a perfect little environment and we're going to raise them and they will never have to feel the pain, the loss, the grief that we had to feel. And it's just really a horrible thing they've done to these kids in the long run. 
It absolutely is. And it's also so short-sighted mm-hmm. that they fail to recognize, even though it's directly in their faces, it's a, it's a thing that they have lived every day, mm-hmm. that the pain that they are feeling comes from human beings, human yes. beings inflicting this upon others. And so by leaving to escape with other human beings, you are escaping with the problem. You, you cannot run from that problem. And, and it's because of that blindness that is built only off of the kind of profound grief that comes when, uh, I think as Sigourney Weaver says, you lose the irreplaceable. Uh, it's, you don't make rational choices. This is, a, this is a deeply irrational choice yeah. that Mr. Walker makes. But, what, but these people have felt no other recourse. That, that inconsolable grief commanded them. And and uh, it's something that something that occurred to me actually uh, only today is that this is like this movie was written just after nine eleven. Um, uh-huh. He was shooting signs. The first day of signs was the, was on nine eleven, and so they had to push uh, one day, and so they they started the shoot of nine eleven uh, shoot of signs with a memorial, um, and so he was writing this at the time, and the idea of that being such an influence on this to me helps unlock so much of what is being said because mm-hmm. the, it's the idea of sealing off your borders of protecting, not just your home, your homeland, but also the idea of a home. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it just permeates this movie. It, it's, 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 it's all about the isolationism uh, and the perpetuation of the fear of the other mm-hmm. and, 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 and what that does not just to a community, but to a person searching for their own way beyond what they know and, and how that traps you and how that stumps you and what that does to these children and how this generation may or may not be able to fight past that, which we see with Ivy and also with Lucius, they are starting to, which yeah. scares the elders. And of course you scare, of course you're scared by what, what you've run from, what <laughs> you've been hiding from as much as you can. They don't want that to happen to their children, but how can you avoid it? It's already happening. It happens in the village. These yeah. children are dying. These people are being murdered. People are being attacked. As we get to Adrian Brody's character, mm-hmm. which is why Lucius is incapacitated in the first place. He's a, he's stabbed almost to death. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, I could go on for a lot longer, but I'll stop <laughs> myself now. One of my friends, Justin, who is a big, a big fan of the village like you, he's he's written me a lot of notes. He like wanted to me to bring these up in the podcast. And one thing he likes to point out is you have to realize that all the elders came from a, uh, a world where they were like college professors. They were all academics and things like that. And he says basically uh, it's it's the whole it's kind of a commentary on academia and well that all these people are not really doers; they're thinkers, and mm-hmm. they've been so racked by grief that they don't have maybe the healthy response to it, to the grief response. Like, again, I'm not old enough to have lost a child, so I can't really mm-hmm. say what that's like, but it's like, I, it's gotta be one of the most horrific things ever. Mm-hmm. And Justin pointed out, he's like, even just listen to the dialogue that the characters use. They're like, it's like excessive. They've, they've created this old English like dialogue and it's really just to run away from the world. They're running away. They're all thinkers. They think this is a way they can escape their pain. And it's just mm-hmm. such a depressing mm-hmm. story. When you think about the bigger picture of this movie, yeah, and he's not wrong. Uh, like, as just talking about how they how they speak. Yes, everyone here has arcane, awkward, very studied, very artificially mannered ways of speaking. And for a lot of people, they they recoiled from that because, like, oh, it sounds so unnatural. Oh, like he's it's so pretentious. No, people who complain about that miss the point. It is supposed 
to sound awkward and mannered and studied and arcane and, and, and clumsy because they are pretenders. As William Hurt says, it is farce. This is theater. It just happens to be theater in which they're living. Mm-hmm. And of course they don't know how to talk properly in this particular era because they're not from it. Yes, mm-hmm. when you study the history, you can only study it. You didn't live it. You don't know it the way those people did. And so, yes, it's very removed in, in certain ways academically like that. He's absolutely mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point that they don't live this. It's like, again, if you don't, <laughs> they're just pretending. It's all it's all play acting. And again, it's not they're not doing it for malicious reasons. And it's, you really have to mm-hmm. think about the bigger picture of the story. These are parents with kids and they think they are doing right by their kids it's not Mm -hmm. like i will say when i was a kid i was at summer camp in sixth grade and the counselors thought it would be funny to put on a show that there was a murderer running out in the woods with an axe and we should all hide in the cabins and Mm -hmm. that was playing a prank on the kids and Mm -hmm. it like scared me crapless but that's not what's going on in the village they think they're doing right we are protecting our kids and it's not unlike these you know parents nowadays i'm a parent i have two kids and you know parents are uh beaten over the head oh there's all these scary things in the world your kid's going to be kidnapped going to be killed blah 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 school shooters and stuff but in reality the the crime rate right now in the world is about the lowest it's ever been mm-hmm. like it's really this mm-hmm. is about the safest time ever in the history of america or in the world and it's funny that so Oddly many enough, parents yeah. yeah so many parents still live with their kids in a bubble nowadays they put them in bubble wrap oh we can't let them go outside oh it's, we can't do this and again you think you're doing right by your kids you're protecting them but you're not because you're mm-hmm isolating them they'll never have to experience anything and again how you live how you grow as a person is you have to experience pain and loss you must do that to really lead a full life if you don't you never really i mean you there's certain levels of maturity you never get to if you never have to experience loss so it's one of these things these parents think they're doing right by their kids but they're not they're absolutely stunting them and again another thing that my friend justin pointed out is that every single bad thing that goes on in this movie in the village and just in general is caused because the parents have shunned progress. Yes. That's there's no medicine. The kid Noah is like retarded. I don't know what exactly his issue is, but he's got mental issues that may have been helped with medicine mm-hmm. or counseling or something. Ivy is blind. That may have been helped with medicine or something when she was young. Mm-hmm. Everything bad in this village is caused because the parents have put these kids in a bubble that's not natural. It's totally not the real world, but these kids eventually are going to get to the age when they start running into the same issues that the parents had. There's a murder, there's jealousy, there's greed. And it, that's the thing that's the parents, I don't know if they didn't know or knew that they had a shelf life on this experiment. It was only going to last until the kids were old enough not to be idiots anymore. <laughs> I mean, to exactly. put, it, put it bluntly. Yeah. So that's the thing yeah. that every single bad thing that happens in this movie happens because the parents have screwed with these kids' lives. And as you said earlier, the parents are the monsters. There are indeed monsters in this movie. They are the parents, what they did to these poor kids. And, and, and sometimes the, the, the most terrifying monsters are the ones who don't know that they're monsters. They mm-hmm. don't know that what they're doing is harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to continue going on that point, yes, this is about not living life, but living the theater of life. This, and, and it's another reason why the movie telegraphs from the very first shot that mm-hmm. this is fake. Uh, where we see, like, the movie fades in from the credits and we see actual theater taking place of August Nicholson in front of his child's coffin. And you have 30, 40 people just standing back, almost like in rows, watching. And the camera zooms in 
on August Mickelson as if we're watching the performance take place. And it may not, and it's not performance because he's lost his child. This is really a tragic moment for him, but it's the composition that tells us subliminally that what we're seeing is in some way artificial. And for that to go from that shot to the tombstone that says 1890 to 1897 as the child's age, something doesn't feel right. And it's not supposed to because the movie's telling us that while the grief is real, the world is not. Uh, and, and as we learn very quickly in the very next scene, it is born out of the horrific choices of these elders mm-hmm. and, and how they have stunted the growth, how they have stunted progress. And yes, frankly, can we ask that? How did they not think that the <laughs> shelf life of this was going to expire? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm no, I have a background in psychology, not really in counseling, but I have to real to believe that people who are under extreme duress, grief, don't think logically. They just want to wrap themselves in a little cocoon. I want the bad thing to go away. And there's not necessarily a long-term plan. You just want the hurt to go away. And I think mm-hmm. that's the message of this movie, that it's all about hurt. Again, people think, oh, it's about a twist. It's about a, you know, a time paradox where you're not in the time you think you are. No, it's not. This movie is about pain and loss, and it's really strong when you watch it the second and third time. Mm-hmm. That the twist, again, quote-unquote twist, is incidental to the movie. Like, the movie, there's way more going on than just, look what he did as a filmmaker here. Absolutely. And, and to get into those layers, I mean, you know, it's the movie's so tragic, as we know, but it's also so deeply romantic. It's also heart wrenching in the most sort of in the most lovely ways. Like the, the I still watched the porch scene between Lucius and Ivy. Uh, that's a single shot. Just their two faces as they quietly, delicately communicate with each other in a way that they never have before. And in, in I like I've shown just that scene to people before and they have lost it and then i tell them so did you know that's from the village they said no the village isn't that that shitty movie no it's yeah. not um uh so you have you know you have these the, this tragedy while ivy saves lucius in the end and they'll go on and they'll live that's a microcosmic victory and then macrocosmically you have the tragedy of the elders faced with their dire consequences of their actions and they choose mm-hmm. to double down on them which will only make things worse and the cycle repeats where they don't realize that they are about to create the harm to their own young that was done to them just in a much more psychological way uh, it's it's running from pain you know you and 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 how you don't realize that what you lost cannot be reclaimed especially with a lie and the weakness that that brings in you and uh yeah oh god i'm it's i have so much i could say i need to stop myself so you can okay here we go. So, yeah, that, I was noticing there's there's three scenes in this movie that I think are really powerful. And in fact, I would say there's about 10 or 12 that I think are good, really good. There's three that are absolute standouts. One of them is the one you said where Ivy and Lucius, you know, finally fall in love on the porch. And, you and know, yes, I will dance with you on our wedding night. Oh, okay. my Lord. Thank oh you, my Brian. Lord. <laughs> okay yeah no it's the yeah yeah for those who don't remember it there's a again we this is very fresh in our heads so we're giving specific examples but all the monsters been the that the this rumor that the monsters are running around the village and and lucius is just sitting on ivy's porch and she's like why are you sitting on my porch and he's like well there's monsters and i need to make sure you're safe blah blah blah, blah. and then she sits down and what yeah what is the quote you just quoted it where uh, she says, I'd like to dance with someone on my wedding night. And he says, yes, I will dance on our wedding night. And that's when they yes. finally, finally admits that he loves her. And they have this really tender kiss. And the night pulls away with the camera. You don't actually see the kiss. You just kind of see it in silhouette. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. such a neat scene. I just love the way it's shot. 
And, and it plays off of the character so well in that Lucius is someone who is so uh, he's so reserved, he's so protective of himself, and he he has no voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time you see him, he doesn't know how to speak to his own mother without a piece of paper in front of him that has written down what he wants to say. Yeah. Um, he, he can't even say outright when he thinks he's done wrong to the village. He mm-hmm. has to give a letter to someone else to read, and he can only sit there meekly as it's happening, and people's heads turn and face him. And this is the scene where he, where he almost loses patience with both Ivy and himself as she tries to pry things out of him, as she tries to help him get to his voice, and then he gets it. And he states that he, like, I think the, the end of the speech is him saying that he feels no fear except for her. Because it is her, uh, it is her safety that he, can, he puts above all else. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's for him to finally find his voice in that moment, for that barrier to drop. And barriers are a huge motif in the movie in so many ways. Uh, it, it's just glorious. It's such mm-hmm. a great moment. Yeah, I would say the dialogue in this movie really jumps out at me. And M. Night, I'm trying to think if he's really known for his dialogue. Like, is it Sixth Sense, is there a lot of really, like, really good dialogue in that? Do you remember? There is, but the thing is, like, the lines aren't quotable. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides I See Dead People, obviously, it's very quotable. Mm-hmm. But, um, like, I, for instance, I could, I could almost from memory quote you the entire car scene between Cole and his mother, where he finally admits his secret. Um, and, and it's because the dialogue is so simple. It's so, it, 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 it's, it's so clean, but yet so precisely emotional. And, and it, 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 it's so clean and, and simple in, in that it lets the actors play with it on their mm-hmm. own. He doesn't, he doesn't force them with profound moments of wordage. He just lets them breathe. It's like, kind of like, the opposite it's, of Tarantino, like Tarantino, yeah. overly to, over the top with the dialogue. Night Shyamalan, Shyamalan will go under the top if that's a word, where he just lets the actors yes. emote. Basically, he loves he loves silence uh, just as much as he loves a precise line. He yeah. loves a he loves a single static shot where the actors can simply exist and mm-hmm. play and let the moment be what it is as your eyes tell the story for you, mm-hmm. uh, as your eyes tell the story for you, as opposed to, you know, cut to this and we go to that close shot and we widen out for the two shot and then we do it over the shoulder. He doesn't, he's not interested whatsoever in, in anything other than letting the story dictate itself. And, and the dialogue is an extension of that. Okay. So let's see. I had the first scene I mentioned, which is them on the, on the porch kissing, and you mentioned that as well. It's funny. If you watch this movie, that scene will just jump out at you. With, it's mm-hmm. so beautiful. The mm-hmm. one that, another one that struck me is there's a scene where uh, Lucius, where Joaquin Phoenix gets stabbed by his jealous rival Noah. He's mm-hmm. collapsed in the, in, the, in the cabin, and then Ivy is the one who finds him, and she, she is in grief. I mean, she wails, falls on him, and the rest of the village uh, comes in and sees her crying over her dead fiancé here. It's like, that is a powerful scene. That's one that really sticks with you when you watch the movie. Like, wow. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that really wasn't so much even acting kind of when you watch it. That's Bryce Dallas Howard just wailing. Like, there's so much emotion in this scene of grief and loss that it's almost tough to watch. Yeah. Wherever she's getting that, she's getting it from someplace very deep inside her. It, it is, it is, it is, it's difficult. And what makes it even more um, harrowing to watch is that part of, uh, part of Ivy's part of Ivy's story is that she may be blind, but she can see color, and she means by that the emotional color of someone, and uh, that's something that uh, she 
sort of teases Lucius with throughout the movie. Like, I, I won't tell you your color. Stop asking. It's, it's, it's flirty, but it's also very, very just, just, just genuinely sweet and, and, uh, and very peaceful, very, very serene. When Lucius is found by her and you see her turn her face as uh, her father comes up on the steps and encounters this bloody tableau, all she can eke out is, Papa, I cannot see his color. And when you, when you hear her say that, you know how dire this moment is, not just for him, but for her. This is something she has never faced before. Not the, just the tragedy, but just the, uh, she's already felt a loss incomprehensible to her. She's never been blind before, you could say. Yes. And this is her first time she's truly blind. Um, and it's terrifying and it should yeah. be terrifying. And and that's why it's, that's, that's, that's a huge reason why I, that it, it's so uncomfortable to watch that scene, not because it's bad, but because it's so strong. It hurts to watch. It does. The the third scene I wanted to mention, and this is probably one I would guess you would you would name as well, the scene where Mr. Walker, where uh, uh, William Hurt has to go explain to the elders that he is allowing Ivy to go into town for the medicines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're all like, how could you do this? Like, we made an oath. We would never go into town. And again, they've hinted, they're hinting along in the movie that there's more going on here than just the village. That's why, again, why the argument is this is, really isn't a twist. It's just kind of a different way of looking at the storyline. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, they're all saying, how dare you? We made an oath. And basically his response is, I said I would never go, but she never made an oath. And she's in love and her husband's about to die and she's about to face the same grief. And again, they don't show this in the movie, but you can kind of you can wheel it out in your head. This is what he's telling them right here. This is where she's going to feel. So it's just it's a really good speech from William Hurt. And again, he he never set out to intentionally lie to his children to hurt them. He's never done anything wrong. He thinks everything he's done up until this point has been correct. The right way to protect your children, to bubble wrap them so they never have to go out into society and go and play with strangers or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. And so here's the moment where he realizes like it's like it smacks him like a two by four right between the eyes that she is about to feel the exact same grief and loss that sent us here in the first place. And it's he does a really good job in this movie in general, as always, as any mm-hmm. movie he's in. But this scene in particular, it's a real standout between some really good actors, I think. Yeah, the cast is stellar. You have Cherry Jones, you have Sigourney Weaver, who whose comment on the script was like, when I read this, I was having nightmares. And I feel like her nightmares are not because of the monsters. Her nightmares are because of the monsters of the humans. Um, and you have Celia Weston and Brendan Gleeson and Jane Atkinson, Judy Greer, Joaquin Phoenix, Bryce Dallas Howard, William Hurt. It is a who's who of fine acting. And uh, it, it's, a, it, it's a kind of cast that M. Night Shyamalan never assembled before or since. And I think that's a particular note to watch such nuanced and careful and um, uh, smart choices being made mm. by gifted, brilliant actors. It, it's, it's a joy to watch, even if they were reading the phone book, frankly. The one who really stood out to me when I watched, obviously, there's Bryce Dallas Howard, but mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix, I think he was it's a very understated role. It looks like it's a very simple role to play, but I was really impressed by just the way he reacts to things and how stoic he is. That's, would you agree with that in this movie? Yes. Uh, it's, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, after Signs, he went to this. And Signs, you know, he wasn't by any means like a loud mouth, but he was definitely, you know, more of a, 
a chatty and at times aggressive and jokey and jovial uh, and, com- and confrontational even to Mel Gibson kind of guy. Um, he's also someone who, who got to be the total jackass in Gladiator. And, uh, <laughs> he was just about to do Walk the Line or he's Johnny frickin' Cash. So like he has this he has an amazing range. But in this movie, yes, he is he is so terrified of his voice, of of being on his own two feet uh, and speaking his piece and and being who he is that he it's all an internal process and to do that is really hard as an actor to pull that off and make that look like a full world is happening internally and communicate that it it is very 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 tricky and any actor will tell you that and for him to pull it off the way he does is incredible it's mesmerizing Okay, the one thing that we've mentioned here earlier in this podcast and uh, you know a couple times in this podcast is that we don't really consider there to be a twist in the movie. Mm-hmm. So uh, how do you want to uh, delve into that? Something I think people would be interested in hearing. Why do you not think there's a twist in the village? So to me, it, it kind of goes into... It, 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 part of it is me being reactionary to people and mm-hmm. to the marketing of M. Night Shyamalan. And, and this is something that uh, uh, had just been you know, in my head playing out uh, a few minutes ago is that, that, that M. Night Shyamalan is just as much a product of marketing um, from the studio as he is a storyteller. And this is sort of like the last point before, uh, at least in my opinion, before he, um, he, he sort of fell victim to his own success and fell victim to the studio system's idea of what he should be because the sixth sense has a twist. It's a genuine twist that you see coming a mile away. Once you know what it is, because every seed is planted. It is meticulous. It is, uh, it is, uh, exquisitely precisely crafted throughout the movie with every hint, with every seed planted. Um, but unbreakable doesn't really have that to me. Unbreakable is not a twist ending because, it is in your face the entire time as something the movie's telling you. The, we are, you are opposites. You are this, uh, David Dunn, as uh, Elijah says, as, as uh, Samuel L. Jackson says to Bruce Willis, you are this, and there is an opposite to you. By the way, uh, you should be getting the hint that as someone who is unbreakable, and I am someone very breakable, I am your opposite, buddy. <laughs> when the movie gets to that, no one should be shocked besides David Dunn. Uh, when he sees uh, the visions of what Elijah has done. Um, the signs doesn't have a twist. I don't consider water killing them as a twist. That's, that's not a twist. That's that again, that's something that's just played throughout the movie as obvious. And it's just something that you, it's a, it's all the dots are there and most of them are connected. It's just one little connection left that's made to me. The village is like that where all of those dots are there, most of them are connected for you. There's just one additional connection that happens. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise you. Because like I said before, the movie goes out of its way from the very first moment to tell you that what you are seeing is fake, is mm-hmm. a performance. And as you, as you, as you see the, the cracks in the elders widen, their emotional damage become more more stated verbally and also just 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 felt. You can you can see them sort of wrapped up and immersed in their own grief and and mm-hmm. sort of reliving the tragedies as things play out. Because again, sorrow will find you. Yes. Um, 
you you are told outright from the black boxes that you see to the ways you're told what's happened in life to uh, to how Ivy is is treated to to how uh, the elders whisper to each other in private. It, this this is not real. No one should be surprised by this by this quote unquote twist. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in the sense that you should know that it's wrong, that what you are seeing is phony. The fact that it's present day, okay, you may be like, okay, well, maybe, okay, it's not time travel, it's not this, it's not that, but you know it's fake. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I would say it's not a twist, and it's okay. never been a twist. Yeah, to me, I would just say the twist, I mean, the twist is that you're just looking at the story from the kid's point of view. Yes. Had you just looked at it from the parents' point of view, it's a totally different story. And I've always argued that would be a fascinating movie to watch this from the parents' point of view. <laughs> and thank you for saying it so much more uh, succinctly than I could. Yes, that's <laughs> actually exactly what it is. We see the perspective of the young generation first. And, for, and, and only in that moment where we are alone with the elders, as Ivy is reaching, quote-unquote, the towns, do we get truly the elders' perspective. The yeah. old generation, the wounded generation. Okay, here's a fun experiment. This is kind of the last thing I want to do. I, I don't want to go too much longer than an hour on these podcasts, but sure. I think it would be fun to. This is what, for the, your second time viewing. We're assuming you've already seen the village once. You know, blah, the big reveal, whatever. Let's walk through the story from the point of view of the parents. I think this would completely <laughs> change the way that people look at the story. And this is how I always wanted to end this podcast The Village mm-hmm. as Seen by the Parents of Covington. <laughs> okay, so here we go. I'll, I'll kind of start. Feel free to jump in. I'll sure, you in a sure. second here. Where I, I am on board with this. I have never okay. done this thought experiment. <laughs> a bunch of professors in the Pennsylvania area, or academics, or otherwise, you know, educated people, have suffered grief. So they formed this little commune. They've gone out to the woods. It was uh, rented out by Mr. Walker, a very rich man. We we learn early in the story that his father was quite rich. So. There's some big-time money going on in the Walker family. He owns this preserve. He has rented it out. He has basically paid off the FAA or the local airports not to fly airport or, uh, planes over it. So this, for all intents and purposes, is his world. He can create his own little commune. And they've been here for 20, 25 years, we established, and things have been going well. They lose a kid to a, an infection every now and then, I would say, but that's a price they've decided they're willing to pay. We can we can lose a kid every now and then, which admittedly, since they're trying to run away from grief, they're already shooting themselves in the foot, but that's the price you pay. Absolutely. To quote uh, Hot Fuzz, it's for the greater good. Yes. Okay, so 20, 25 years in, and there's a troublemaker. Uh, well, there's two troublemakers in the village. One in particular is Lucius. A uh, walking phoenix, a very brave, stoic young man who is bothered by the fact that kids are apparently dropping dead left and right in this village and no one's doing anything to help them. And this bothers him because he's a good kid and he's not stupid. He's like, why don't we do anything to help them? I've like there's towns around here. Perhaps there's places that could help us that have medicines or something. So he's not an idiot and he's kind of figured this out. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other troublemaker is Noah, who is the village idiot. He was kicked in the head by a horse or something. I don't know what was going on, but he's, he's a troublemaker, but he loves to run out in the woods and play because he's an innocent young man who doesn't really grasp the bigger concept of the village. He's just a kid who wants to go play in the woods. Okay, so now here we go. The parents are troubled by this because Lucius is pushing very hard that why don't we stop all these kids dying in the village? 
And they're like, no, we can't. And Lucius is not going to take no for an answer. So now the parents have to up their game. For years, they've been playing this game. We have noises in the woods. We have fires. We run around in costume to scare the kids and keep them scared. Just like, again, like when I was in sixth grade summer camp and they decided to give me a heart attack, my counselors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now they have to up their game a little. So to... They're going to start upping the game as if the those who live those who uh, what, what's the name I know you said those who we, those don't, we speak don't speak of, those yeah. we don't speak of yeah we have to start upping the game as if they are coming into our village because we're pushing our luck so they start skinning animals they start leaving corpses around and they're getting a little nervous right at this point the parents are like uh, the game may be up pretty soon because these kids are starting to wise up to our our facade mm-hmm. and therefore the slippery slope becomes ever more slippery yes so it's really all going to come to a head. So they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing and they, the elders are doing raids now where the the monsters are coming into the town, which again is just some elder they picked to run around and scare people. And these kids are scared crapless. So like it's working and the kids are retreating more and more into the village and the parents have more and more control. And then, okay, what, what are the two things that, that really the straw breaks the camel's back here is that Lucius falls in love with Ivy. They finally decide that they're in love and they'd like to be married. And, they learned that Noah has been running out into the woods and apparently no monsters eating him in the woods. They got the village idiot out there running around willy nilly picking berries. Nothing's bad happening to him. And the kids are starting to put two and two together. Like maybe if you're pure of heart and you mean no harm, then the monsters won't hurt you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, here, and here we go. So you look at this from the point of view of the parents, like we're in some deep doo doo here. Like they're going to figure this out real quick. And 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 what that produces in them is a very sinister approach mm-hmm. to problem solving. If you want to call this a horror movie, that's your horror. The yeah. horror is that these parents only know how to double down to save themselves. They mm-hmm. think they're protecting their own, but they are only protecting themselves. Yep. And and when you have a child dead in a pit crying because he was he thought he was. He thought he was good enough to go into the woods. He thought he was good enough to do this. And he uh, is is now dead. And he's now going to be used as an excuse. He had an accident. And he's now a victim to the to the creatures that don't actually <laughs> exist. Because we need an example yes. for the children. Yeah, you jumped a little far ahead. But yeah, that's where we're headed with this. That the parents' solution to help their kids is basically to terrify them even more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and again, all this would probably work. It seems to work great. They get Lucius to fall in love with Ivy. He's kind of settled down. He doesn't want to leave so much because now he has a reason to stay. They've finally solved their problem. And now the true horror that they have created, that they have created a society with jealousy and that Noah, the village idiot, is in love with Ivy. He does not like that Ivy is hooked up with Lucius. And Noah, in his very simplistic way, decides the way to solve this problem is to stab Lucius in the stomach with a knife. And now we have what they don't mention it in the movie. They don't specifically point it out, but I would have to think is the first crime in the history of Covington. Yes, I, I believe it is. Ba- yes. I, I would just say based on the context clues of their reaction yeah. and how the village handles it. And so this is really where the movie jumps into the interesting part that the elders now have to make a choice. We have done so much to these kids over the years. We have created a facade. They live in terror every day. Now, one of our children is in in danger of being killed in a murder situation. And again, he's not dead, but he's going to get an infection. It's going to kill him without a shadow of a doubt. They know it. At this point, do we break the facade or not? And the interesting thing is the villagers say no. Mm -hmm. They are so invested in this lie 
no, we're going to let uh, Alice's son die. Lucius mm-hmm. is going to die. I'm sorry, but that's the oath we took. We vowed never to go back. We're vowing we're staying away from pain. And that was they, they pulled Mr. Walker aside and say, I'm sorry, you can't do it. You made an oath, same as we did. Ain't nobody helping this kid. And Mr. Walker, as one of the few heroes, he kind of he comes here at the end. He does a little face turn and he's like, loophole, I can't do it, but I can send my daughter. She never took an oath. And again, he this is the hero moment of the movie. He stands up against the monsters. He stands up against the elders. And he's like, she is going to go out there. She is going to discover the truth. Whether she wants to come back and continue this facade, if this life is worth living, it is up to Ivy. When she comes back, that will determine the future of the village. And really, that's the movie from the point of view of the parents, which I think is a fascinating story. And it's why I think the village is so much more interesting the second time you see it, because you can look at it through their eyes. And, and see, before you started that, as I already said, I haven't done this thought experiment before. And when you go through it that way, it really is a remarkably different experience. Yeah. And, uh, and very, very uh, different and complex emotional through line. For this movie, oh my lord, yeah, that that's actually stunning. And actually, um, like I, I, my question for you uh, is that as uh, as they are, you know, finding this resolve to, as as uh, uh, Mr. Walker is finding his resolve to let Ivy go because Ivy didn't make the oath, so she's going to go. She, and he tells the elders, "No, I've made the choice. She gets to do it, and you can't stop her. I can't stop her. None of you can. What are you going to do? Kill her? Really? Like, I mean, there's no other alternative. And so yeah. they're not going to do that. They're going to let her go. And the elders then. Uh, or at least um, Mr. Walker and his wife then go back home and we see what's inside these black boxes that each elder has in their home. And my question for you is they open that black box. Mm -hmm. They look at the news clippings. They look at their mementos from when they were 25 years ago, just about to come to Covington to build it. They have their, 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 their keepsakes from the old world as it were. Mm Why? Why? Do you think they open that box to revisit that pain, to revisit that world that they left behind? Do you think it's because they're trying to steal their resolve, like they're trying to remind themselves of this is what we're running from? Or do you think that in that moment they're not sure if they're getting ready to face what yeah. they've run from? What my, do you think it is? I don't know if there's a right or a wrong answer. My personal, <laughs> yeah, my personal opinion is they know it's over. The jig is up. Our facade is done. We're going to be going back to the real world because there's no way that we're going to be live. We'll be able to live here with, with one of us knowing that it's all fake, that we've lied to them all these years. I think they are slowly reminding themselves of what they're about to go back to. I agree completely. And I think that the I think that that is the more viable interpretation, because when you see at the very last scene that um, uh, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character uh, says Ivy's returned from the town. She encountered a creature and killed it. That is the and, and it's an unfortunate moment that he retreats with. But that's the moment Mr. Walker realizes that's our way out. Yeah, we can yeah. keep going with <laughs> Noah as a sacrificial lamb, and that is doubly tragic. But I feel like that's a choice that was only made in that moment, and that before then the elders. Did did come to the conclusion that this is about to to die. Yeah. So I agree with you. Yes, excellent. <laughs> and it's funny because a lot of people, again, if you haven't seen this movie lately, you'll remember. Oh, the ending of the movie is we discover that Ivy's in modern times, 
And I'm like, that's a very simplistic way of remembering the ending. There's a lot more going on there because it's left very open-ended. She comes back to the village with her medicines. She saves Lucius. Mm-hmm. Is Ivy going to continue this facade? We don't know. And like you said, they even have an out, the elders, where Noah has been out in the woods. He's dead. We could say the monsters killed him. It will double down on our story. We can keep going. And it's left wide open, like, what's going to happen? And that's why this is one of those movies that is well open to a sequel. If they ever wanted to do it, it would be fantastic to see if he ever wanted to visit again, because there's so much more going on there at the ending than most people remember. There, there really is. But I would actually hate to see a sequel for this. I would yeah. hate to see a sequel because I feel like the end of this movie is exactly what it needs to be to mm-hmm. conclude their story because it leaves one – ultimately, it leaves one question to a viewer's own interpretation. What does Ivy do? Yeah. What does Ivy say? What does mm-hmm. Ivy keep secret? What does Ivy own to the others? Mm-hmm. Um, because he, cause, cause one thing we forgot to mention is that her father tells her that there were legends. There were actually legends about those woods having creatures in, mm-hmm. in, old, in, in old-timey Pennsylvania legend. There are those stories. And so they used those stories as their inspiration for the creatures of those who we don't speak of. And Ivy remembers as she's encountering the creature that's actually Noah in the suit, she remembers her father saying that. And so Ivy is not sure if that's real or not. So she is terrified. She is scared for her life that she is actually being attacked by something supernatural. So she knows that the elders fake it. She doesn't know that it is completely fake but -hmm. that's our first seed and so where does that go in ivy's mind what does she discover after that and i i'm someone who would hate to see that answered definitively because that would rob us of the ability to answer that ourselves and i think the village is an amazing example of a movie that does so much to plant the seeds in the viewers hearts and Mm -hmm. let them run with them so (laughs) that they can go on that journey both with the elders and with the youth as they're very different journeys and, and you extract from that what you will about the themes of loss and grief and hope and the idea of what is your home? What do you run from? What do you run to? What do you build for yourself? What do you create for yourself? What is your world? These things are answered very differently. And uh, Ivy's choice is kind of the bridge between the youthful choice and the elder choice. She now has that responsibility and I love playing with that in my head. I would yeah. hate to see that answer definitively. <laughs> and what you could once say, say in a sense that she is no longer a youth. She has become an elder. Yes, she has. She has now been tasked with the knowledge. Yeah. And, and what do you do with it? So yeah. Oh God, I love this movie. <laughs> okay. One more scene before I wanted to talk about before we do a little wrap up here. Sure. There's a scene towards the end of the movie where Ivy's going through the, the, the woods. And of course this is the one they always hyped up in the promos because like Brian said, this was billed as a horror movie 100% when it came out, where a monster is chasing her in the woods. It turns out that it's Noah. He falls in a pit, and she basically kills him. What's your interpretation of that scene? Is that Noah just playing hide-and-seek with her like he always does? Yes. Yeah. In, in my mind, um, the Noah, Noah is a character that unfortunately – uh, does not have any real growth. I mean, he does. He does. He does go on his own arc um, of jealousy. Of, of we, we see the affection and the love that he has for Ivy, um, and the jealousy that he has for Lucius, commanding Ivy's attention. But beyond that, there's not much more to him because, unfortunately, 
there's just not much more to him. So to me, yes, he is playing hide and seek with her. He escapes with the suit. And he, who knows if he thinks it's fake or real or what it is, because he's Noah. But I think he's just playing a game with Ivy. He knows that Ivy's gone and he wants to be with Ivy. He wants to find Ivy because that's what they do. That's their life. That's all he's known. That's his comfort. And that's what kills him in the end. Yeah. And that's the one thing I think people should really give this movie a second chance about. Like, there are no monsters. There's no real danger at any point in the movie. The only real danger is Noah stabbing Lucius. That's the one Mm -hmm. time anybody's ever in any danger in this movie, Mm -hmm. other than all the psychological damage that's being done to these kids. And then at the end, that's this horrible tragedy is that one person does die and it's Noah and it was totally preventable. Like he's just playing with Ivy. It's really all these lies and all this stuff that the parents have created that there's monsters in the woods. That's why Noah dies. They kill Noah. Yes, absolutely. 100%. (laughs) And I don't know, did you, you did see this in the theater or do you sell this on DVD first? In DVD, never the theater. Okay. So seeing this in the theater, um, there's a reason why there was a grand total of one gasp uh, in the theater. And that gasp is when we go from Lucius turning around and saying that there are different kinds of love and he stops mid-sentence and he has a confused look on his face. You cut to Adrian Brody's face mm-hmm. where Noah uh, is looking down he looks up to Lucius's eyes and he looks really confused himself. Like he didn't, he didn't quite know he was about to do what he just did. Mm-hmm. Lucius then looks down and we see that Noah's wrist is right up against Lucius's body. And then he pulls his wrist back and we see it is a knife that he just buried to the mm-hmm. hilt into Lucius's chest. That was the one gasp of the movie. And it's because it is a human horror that takes place. Yeah. That is the only true horror moment of the movie is when a human being inflicts violence upon the other. And the rest of the movie spooks you maybe at times it has a creepy unsettling vibe at times but it's not horror mm-hmm. except for when we cause it against ourselves exactly in fact and, uh, and hearing that gasp was great because that because the sound also is pulled out from that moment in the movie you only hear a slight uh sort of echo of wind passing through the house because the door is open so you you barely hear a breath from either of them and when that knife comes out it it's just it, it it's 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 a sensory moment unto itself. And so the audience's reaction is so much more, uh, uh, so much stronger than, than you would have if the music crashed or if there was a sudden thing here or whatever. Oh, it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was played really well. Yeah. And that's the one question I wanted to ask. What was the audience's reaction in the theater when you saw it to this movie? I'm very curious. I remember, um, my audience being sympathetic to the movie. I didn't have an audience that was talking back at the screen uh, rudely or um, uh, you know, rolling their eyes or laughing at it or anything like that. Um, like, like the jokes were hitting in the right places and um, the creep factor was hitting in the right places. There were, there were some people who I do remember crying when uh, Lucius and Ivy had their porch scene. And uh, the, the stabbing was the gasp. So, mm-hmm. um, so my experience seeing it in the theater was positive and it only was afterwards that the blowback started becoming more noticeable publicly where the mm-hmm. reviews were really kicking in of, Oh wait, people are really not responding to this well. And, um, and then I heard some friends after that, like the next weekend, Oh my God, how did you like that? That piece of garbage wasn't mm-hmm. scary. 
all. And I said, it wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> and they insisted it was because the trailer told them it was. Yeah. And I can't fight them on that because they're just going to dig in. So yeah. uh, <laughs> at least I got to have – and it's the same thing with the Blair Witch Project. I'm very grateful I had for my first viewing of it in the theater a very receptive, engaged audience on the journey of the movie, uh, willing to buy what it was selling and committed uh, to the story. So it, yeah. that, that definitely started me with a good taste. Here's one question for you. This is probably my last question about the village here. Do you think it is, a, it is possible for a person to really understand, grasp, experience, and, and enjoy this movie on the level it was created for? Do you think that's possible on the first viewing, or does it take more than one viewing? I, uh, I, I really do think it merits at least two viewings to, to truly appreciate what it does because mm-hmm. no matter, I feel like like this podcast is not going to help some people in breaking the idea of no, it's not my Chumbawamba movie. It must be twisty. It must have something that I have to be watching out for or this or that. And I have to start looking at all his little, his, his little dots that he's connecting so I can see the puzzle pieces and, you know, academically watching it. it. I feel like it's going to be hard for people on the first viewing to not do that. And, and once you've gotten that first viewing out of the way, you can go back and you can appreciate what it's doing for what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest thing to do for an M. Night Shyamalan movie is to appreciate it for what it is, to mm-hmm. let it be what it's telling you it wants to be as opposed to what you think it should be. And so, uh, if, if you get it on the first viewing, great. Please still rewatch it because you will then have a greater appreciation for the, the, uh, for the level of detail that it has, for the very meticulous plotting that it has, for the, uh, for the, for the character work that it has, for even the tiniest bits of dialogue that are – it's so modulated. It's, it's, it's so well-crafted mm-hmm. on yeah. a second viewing that you can't exactly see on the first viewing. It, it should be seen twice. But if you love it the first time, I'm not going to fight you on that. <laughs> Definitely not going to fight you on that. Yeah, the artistry is really what jumps out at me on the second, third, fourth viewing. That, And I'm especially impressed by how little M. Night cheats in this movie just to make it twisty. He really doesn't. There's not one false moment in this movie where he intentionally misleads you or like absolute just lies to you. There's Absolutely one, no red herrings, yeah. yeah. There's one scene that's a little that's a little bit almost cheaty, and I was watching for it on this last viewing where – you know, the, the, the monsters have been coming into town and been skinning livestock. And, mm-hmm. and so the parents have upped the game, and now they're drawing marks on the doors and putting marks high up on the door to prove that it's not a coyote, that it's actually the monsters coming into town to come after mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene with Sigourney Weaver and William Hurt where they're saying, well, the marks are higher. Coyotes couldn't go that high. And you think, <laughs> you think they're talking about they're worried that monsters are coming to town, but on second viewing you realize they're not worried, they're plotting. Exactly. And that's the only time M. Night comes even close to cheating in this movie. And that's, it's very impressive when you look for it. And it's something that only a very skilled screenwriter slash director could do. And again, you're a screenwriter. I'm preaching to the choir here. That's very tricky to do something like this and not cheat. It's insanely difficult because the hardest thing to do is to deliver an idea or multiple ideas at the same time with the least amount of time spent and words spent to be able to, to say multiple things with a single sentence. That's, that's, that, that's misery trying to get right because it's, it's, 
And then you have to do that for 90 to 120 minutes, mm-hmm. give or take. And, and what you just said is a perfect example of how this movie does that so well, mm-hmm. how it, it it's able to deliver simultaneously a cheat, but also um, uh, just a, just a gloriously uh, well-crafted hint as to what the what the what the psychology is of these elders? What these people have committed themselves to doing, and the kinds of damage psychologically they're willing to inflict mm-hmm. in order to maintain a status quo, and how that they have become what they have rebelled against, and yep. and the fact that they don't realize that they are trapped in that cycle of humanity. How you become what you fear uh, is, 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 it's, it's so smart. This is one of the, it's absolutely one of his smartest scripts. And I'm so happy that slowly people are starting to come around to, to recognizing why, um, why it's so, why it's, why it's so sharp. (laughs) Something you just said, this reminds me, but I've brought up my friend, Justin, I'm going to butcher his last name, Justin Lesniewski or Lenuski. I don't know how to pronounce that. But Justin has my all-time favorite quote when discussing the village, and this will make you laugh, that I was talking about the village a while back in a thread on Facebook, and and someone said, oh, my wife nailed the ending. She guessed the ending to that in five minutes. And Justin responded, oh, really? She called that the elders were the actual monsters because they hated society, but ironically created <laughs> the same problems they tried to run away from? <laughs> There's my rebuttal to anybody who said they guessed the ending and they hate this movie, too. <laughs> Think that quote in mind. <laughs> That is a perfect concluding note, frankly. Uh, He is completely correct, and whoever says that they guessed the ending in five minutes is completely incorrect. No one guessed the ending to this movie. No one. Not one person. And I will fight anyone who dares to try to argue otherwise. Okay, before we sign off, I have one quote here I've circled. It's triple underlined in my notes. I have to end this. Just as, as we've mentioned, the dialogue in this movie, the themes are so amazing. This is one of the greatest speeches I can think of in any of this movie, any of the movies we're going to talk about on this podcast. And it's right towards the end of the movie where Mr. Walker is explaining to the elders why his daughter is going to go into town and what this is going to mean. Do you know which monologue I'm about to read here? Yes, I do. And I look forward to hearing it again. Here we go. He says, let her go. If it ends, it ends. We can move towards hope. That's what's beautiful about this place. We cannot run from heartache. My brother was slain in the towns. The rest of my family died here. Heartache is a part of life. We know that now. Ivy is running toward hope. Let her run. If this place is worthy, she'll be successful in her quest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just so beautiful. And again, there's so much I love about this movie, and I just wish it got a second, third chance from people. And it's one of those things. I don't know if we'll make much of a difference on this podcast. I obviously share the same love that you do for The Village, but I would just love to hear some feedback from people that said, you know, I listened to you guys, I watched it, and it was really a different movie the second time around. And that's that would just warm my heart if I were to hear something like that. Honestly, if this, if, if you're four listeners, as you joke, <laughs> uh, if, if even one person hears even a little bit of this episode, if not the whole thing, and is able to walk away reapproaching the village and sees in it the the quality craftsmanship that it has, I will consider this successful because fighting people against the village is 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 like rolling the stone up the hill. It's so backbreakingly exhausting because you're fighting so many different perceptions 
that that that's all they are. They're perceptions of something that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And you can't convince them it doesn't exist until you put it in front of them to see, but they refuse to see it. So even one person being willing to see it for the first time with a fresher perspective will be a job well done as far as I'm concerned for this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things, like I just find this this movie so beautiful and the storytelling so lovely, just like, it's like people who hate it hate love. Like, come on, <laughs> open your heart to this movie. It's so beautiful and just okay. Sad. Just, just calm down there. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I thought I was talking about Top Secret here for a second. Okay, we'll go back to the village. Okay, well, I think that's about it. We've gone well over an hour. And again, I think we could have gone longer, but I just don't want to beat people over to the head with it. We're going to re- just repeat stuff over and over. But have you sure, got everything okay. off your chest? Everything you I, wanted to get off? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, all of my all of my notes are really just to remind me how much I love the movie. It's not necessarily <laughs> notes for the podcast. No, I think uh, I think we've definitely hit the right beats as far as making sure people realize why this movie is loaded with quality. And dear God, please give it another chance mm-hmm. because it deserves your eyes, it deserves your ears, and it deserves your brain, and it deserves your heart because it has a lot of heart to give. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate anybody who wants to come on the show and talk about especially a movie as divisive as this one. So I really appreciate you uh, putting yourself on the line to uh, open yourself <laughs> to criticism here because, again, there's, there's going to be people that listen to this and say, that movie sucks. What are they talking about? And I, I look – I look forward to their corrections to our opinions. Uh, no, thank you for uh, for uh, letting me come on and uh, defend a movie that uh, is in dire need of good defense. Excellent. That's Again, that's what we're here for. And uh, again, I just want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Again, this is uh, Staff Picks, where I have people on to talk about movies that are underrated, underloved, just need a little help, a little hug, movies that maybe need a little hug. So, uh, again, that's what you're going to get from this podcast. Again, my name is Mario Lanza. You can reach me. Uh, I have my email at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Mario J. Lanza or on uh, Patreon. I have a patron page, patreon.com slash Mario Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, again, as Mario signing off. I will be sure to find another movie that people hate and try to get people to talk about it. That's my plan. And thank you for listening. I'll talk to you guys later. Goodbye. Goodbye to peace. Oh, no, 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 no. The last time you're going to be seeing these for a while.